And so I studied three chapters. I studied 15, 16, and 17. And that was my intention to go through three chapters. But then as I was just praying and spending time with the Lord, I just, uh, he gave me something just to kind of, just to dwell on this one chapter. Even though it's small, it is so significant. How many of you here like presents? You're thinking gifts, huh? You're thinking iTunes cards and stuff, huh? No, presence, the presence of God. I mean, isn't that really what it's all about? You know, the, the God that we serve, he's a God who's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times in his fullness. But there is something special about his manifest presence that when we're walking with him, that when we're, you know, in fellowship with him, there, there's, a, there's a really cool passage in the book of James that says, draw near to God. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. There is something, there is somewhere in the kingdom of God where where certain Christians are closer than others. And, And what I'm praying for us as a church is that we all would be in that special manifest presence of God in a perpetual way because he is who we need in all the struggles and all the hard times that we're going through and all the challenges And all these things, the hurts and the calamities and tragedies, the answer is the presence of God. And that's why I love this psalm in Psalm 15. Notice what we read here. Psalm 15, it's a psalm of David. And he begins, first of all, with a question. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? There's the question. And then, and then he gives the answer. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt, And does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He begins with a question. Then he he gives the answer. And then he closes the psalm with a promise. He who does these things shall never be moved. And it's, it's such a beautiful psalm. That, that teaches us how to live, how to walk in the perpetual, special, manifest presence of God. I don't know about you, but that's what I want in my life. You know, I, I, you know, I don't know if you, you, know, you go through life and sometimes you, can, you feel like you're, you're, not, you're not there, that you're lacking that power that God wants to provide. And, and this is how, and a lot of times what ends up happening is we break fellowship with God because of these things right here. You know, let's begin, first of all, by looking at the question. And he, he says, who may abide in the, in the tabernacle? Again, look at verse 1. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Now, most of you here probably know what the tabernacle is, but not all of you do. That was a place where the special presence of God was manifested to the people of God in the Old Testament. And I think we have a couple of visual aids here, just in case uh, you've never seen it. 
On, the, on this side right here, you kind of you know, get the, the 3D visual there. It wasn't really big, 150 by 75. And you know, you've got the tabernacle there. Um, and what that is, is you would see as you would go in uh, through the gate on the east, first of all, you'd have the altar of burnt offerings. And that was where the sacrifices were made. That was where you, know, you, you would have the animal die on behalf of you and then you would go forward and then they have this uh, water where the priests would wash and then they would enter in to the tent right there and as you go into the tent you'd have the the golden lampstand you have the two uh, loaves uh, representing the 12 tribes of Israel that was the the holy place but then you go beyond that into that last room it's the most holy place and there you would have the ark of the covenant and you would have the two cherubim over it and what that was right there is that was the most holy place. And that, that last place right there is, is, the, is where the actual presence of God was symbolized for the children of Israel in the Old Testament. And the only one who could ever go there was the high priest once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. He would go into that most holy place. And so this whole tabernacle thing was given to Moses and the book of Exodus, it was built by the children of Israel. It survived all the way to the days of David. Eventually, it would be replaced by the, by the temple. But, but this, this tabernacle right here, David is saying, who can live there? Who can abide there? And then when he mentions the most holy hill, he's talking about that special place, that right there, that, that city of David, where, again, symbolic of where, where God is. And that's the question. You know, who can live there in the perpetual presence of God? What type of person, what type of creature can stay close, close to God like that? You know, it's an awesome question. If we were to take this question literally, we know that only the Levites or the priests could abide in the tabernacle. And, and it's, it's a possibility maybe david was speaking literally and writing the psalm to them saying essentially you know you guys your leaders your priests your levites you want to live there in the tabernacle then this is how you better live it's a possibility that that's what he's saying to the leaders we know that moses told aaron in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, that those who come near me, God said, I must be regarded as holy. If you're going to get near to God, if you're going to serve the Lord, if you're going to be involved in leadership, then you better live like this. If you want to live by the tabernacle, you want to be a Levite or a priest, this is how you need to live. You know, Isaiah would write the same thing, something similar in Isaiah 52 and verse 11. It says, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. You, know, you want to be a pastor, you want to be a leader, you want to be a teacher, you want to be a missionary. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his grace that forgives us of our sins. But thank God for his grace that changes us. And so there's a possibility that he's speaking literally and so, you know, David Guzik is interesting. He mentions the fact that this may have been written when King David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. You read that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But, but more than likely, this is a simple psalm posing a powerful question for all who want to draw near to God and stay near to God. 
You know, if you're here tonight and you're like, man, I would love to walk on water. I would love to move mountains. I would love to walk in the perpetual presence of God. I want to stay close to Jesus. I want everything that God has for me. If that's you, then what he does is he gives us the answer to those who have that heart. Lord, how can I do this? Who may abide there, right? Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell, remain as a resident and stay on your holy mountain? Not just a guest of God going in and out, you know, but like a resident that lives there, resides there perpetually, right? And, and, and so when you look at this right here, it's a great question. And I, and I pray that would be all of us here. And maybe you're here already and you're already thinking about dinner. You know, I was back there while we were worshiping. No, I mean, it wasn't the worship. The worship was beautiful. But you know how we are carnal, right? You know what I thought? This is a good night for lampposts. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, it's probably because I haven't eaten much. But no, I, immediately I was caught back in, in the worship. And, and so thank God that didn't last long. But I know how you guys are. You're thinking other things. What's going on in your, in your life, man? No, this is, we're here, we're here meeting with God. We're here studying his word. You're not here for your girlfriend or your boyfriend or, you know, just because the, the kids now have a place to stay. Praise God that they do have that. But no, we are all here because we want to seek God. That's why we should be here. I want to come close to Christ. I want to live in the perpetual presence of God. I want to see him move in a mighty way. So, Lord, how? How can I abide in the tabernacle? How can I dwell on this holy hill called Mount Zion? Lord, how? You know, because I don't know about you, but I know for me, there's those times when you feel disconnected from God. And again, we can't go by feelings, but I think that sometimes there is a distance. Sometimes there is a disconnection. You know, when I, when I, when I'm, calling my wife on, on the cell phone and, and it's so cool because usually she'll call me as soon as I leave the house, you know, and it's kind of cool. And so, but I know there's certain streets that we're going to lose connection, you know, right there on Vine, right when you're going to turn left on Citrus or if you're going down Grand Avenue, you guys ever go to Mount Sac over there in that area? I don't know about all services, but I know for me, there's certain places where I just lose that connection. And it's, you know, it's just a phone. It's no big deal. But I, I never, I never want that to happen with me and God. We should never want that to happen between us and God. And you know what? It doesn't have to. There is a way that we can abide. There is a way that we can dwell And so David here, he asks such an important question. And then he gives us four things that I think help us with the answer. Number one, and you can actually check this out in your life. Number one is is your walk. Number two is your work. Number three is your words. And number four is your wealth. David here, he gives us the answer. Again, if you would notice in verse one, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill? And in verse two, he says, he who walks uprightly. That's the first thing he mentions right here is our walk. In the Bible, our walk is descriptive of our pattern in life. It's kind of a general summary of me. 
you know, how's my walk? Am I walking with the Lord? I mean, truly, am I walking like the Lord? When Adam was first made, you guys remember in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord walked in the garden. I believe with all my heart that Adam walked with God. There's something special. Every once in a while, my wife and I, we get to go on walks. There is something special about walking with someone. Are you walking with God? Are you walking in one sense like God? Not perfect. None of us here are perfect. But there is an aspect of being proper. As a matter of fact, the NIV, the NET, the NLT, I mean, almost every other translation uses the word blameless. He who walks blamelessly, that's kind of what our goal should be. And even though we're not going to hit it because we're all going to fall short, that should be our desire. Lord, I want to live my life to make you smile. But I want to be pleasing to you. I want this to be the, the, the entirety of my life, a general description of my life. I want to walk with you. I want to walk like you, right? First John chapter 2 and verse 6 kind of says something similar. It says, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Have you guys ever seen someone, you got a dad and he walks a certain way, maybe he goes like this. Have you ever seen that? And then his son does the same thing. Have you guys ever seen that? It's in the DNA, man. It's just, you know, the way they are, or maybe it's because they saw him walk like that. I don't know, but there's something about that that works into our spiritual life as well. And I tell you what, when the Lord gets a hold of your life, man, and you start living that life, then you're going to stay close to your creator. You're going to be abiding in the tabernacle. You're going to be dwelling there. And you're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed. And that's what we want, right? I mean, again, not perfect, but proper, having a heart and a desire to please God. Ephesians 5.15, it says something pretty important. It says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. You know, and what that means is you walk carefully. And so, you know, you're, 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 you don't want to step on a landmine. You don't, you don't want to step in a hole. I mean, it's your life. Every step you take, one in front of the other, there your feet go, both eyes on Jesus. How's your walk? How's your life? If I was to summarize you, because in one sense, a walk is the summary of me, what would they say about you? You know, and I don't know. We're all different here. Thank God for that. But I would say this. I pray that one day someone would say about us that we are a loving church, that you are a loving person. Because the Bible says by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so I encourage you to check your walk. Are you walking with Christ? And not only how you walk, but in verse 4, it mentions uh, who you walk with. In verse 4, it says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. You know, when you look at the things that are going on, literally it's a reprobate. You're not going to be one of those type of people to go and hang out with them. You hate the sin. You pray for the sinner. You love them. But what you do is you honor those who fear the Lord. And so number one is is your walk. Number two is your work. Look again, if you would, at verse two. It says, 
he walks uprightly and works righteousness. How, how is your walk? You can examine it. You can check it out. You can ask your wife. She'll tell you, man. She'll be honest with you, right? You can ask your husband, maybe. I don't know. So the guys are different. <laughs> You can ask your friend, you know, be honest with me. You know, I, I you know, I want to, I want to, how, what do you see when I walk? How, how is your walk? Secondly, how is your work? How, how is your work? One thing I know is that if you've been saved by God, you're going to serve God. You will serve God somehow, some way, if you're saved by God. We're not saved by works, but we're saved by faith, and faith always somehow, some way works. It shows, right? There's fruit in your life. It's the productivity of who you are as a person. That's your works. And it's very important. As a matter of fact, Paul told Titus in Titus 1.16, it talks about people, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. So if you're going to stay close to the Lord, there's got to be something about your walk. If you're going to be close to the Lord, abiding in the tabernacle, and then there's got to be something uh, about your, your works. If you want to enjoy the perpetual presence of God, then you, we, we have to, according to this, work righteousness. You know, so, so faith we know always works. So the question is, am I working righteousness how many of you here are you know you can honestly say i'm I'm actually busy serving the lord and i'm not saying it has to be here in this building or calvary chapel almani you know you're doing it there at your home and different places man but you have gifts that you are investing into the kingdom of god you have talents you've been given you were born with you were born again with and you're giving them back to god you know you're working unto the lord you know, I think a lot of times what happens in churches, man, people don't work. They don't just take the day off. They go on vacation. You know, you don't go on vacation from working for Jesus Christ and you don't retire. Right? I mean, you keep working. You know, it was interesting. Today I was reading the Bible and I was uh, reading in that section in Leviticus. I think I'm in chapter 23 and I finished it up the book and and it was just talking about how six days you work and the seventh day you rest. So six days you work, seventh day you rest. How many of you here, you listen to that sentence and you're like, yes, Sabbath day. Yeah, you better take your Sabbath day, right? And, uh, and so that's cool, but it's kind of interesting. For whatever reason, the other part caught me. And it said six days you work. And so um, I don't know. I think we focus more on rest and relaxation, on convenience. And so, again, don't overwork to be rich. And so what I always tell people, if possible, men, work five days at your work. Work one day at home. And how many wives would say amen? Imagine how your life would change if your husband worked one day at home. And five days at work. And then one day rest, okay? So all I'm saying is that there's a place... For work, And for us as Christians, if we're not working righteousness, then we're going to be in, in trouble, you know. I think that what happens a lot of times in the Christian world is that we're kind of getting hit hard by unemployment, if you know what I mean, you know. They say that the rates are down around the country. The unemployment rate now is actually 4.1% in the United States of America. 
5.2% in Almani, which is a little higher. But I wonder, in all reality, if you look inside the hearts of the people in the church, what's the unemployment rate here? When, when you want to stay close to Christ, when you want to abide in the tabernacle and dwell in that holy mountain called Zion, then you're going to be walking a certain way. You're going to be working a certain way. That's why we were saved. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which we, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it's interesting there how he connects the walk with the works. So it doesn't save us, but God says, as a matter of fact, you're not saved by works, but you are my workmanship, you are my poem, and you are saved unto works. You know, when I first became a Christian, I, a lot of young adults, believe it or not, I was a young adult, at one time, okay? And I remember, you know, all of us, we, we got saved. We started going to church. And then, you know what happened? Is I started serving the Lord. I got involved in ministry. I said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get plugged in. And, and, you know, for me, I'm not saying it's always the same thing for all of you, but maybe some of you need some of that. You know, and so when you, when you watch the Bible and then you see, for example, the servants there in John chapter 2, when they turned the water to the wine, Jesus turned the water to the wine. I mean, it's so amazing. You know, he says, fill these, you know, jars up, big old jars, 60 gallons, fill them all up. And then he just thought it and the water was turned to the best grape juice you ever had in your whole life. And no one knew it except the servants. Because when you start serving the Lord, you start seeing things that no one else sees. I'm telling you this, man. And I remember my friend told me there was nothing like serving the Lord. So you want to stay close. You know, you got to check out your walk. And, and everyone's different here. I don't want to put a cookie cutter approach, but you should be working for God. It's another thing you're going to look at. And the third thing is probably the most important of these in in that it spends more time on it. Not only will you look at your your walk and and your work, but you're going to look at your words. Notice again what it says. uh, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness. And here it is. And speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Look at the end of verse 4. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So a few things about your words. Number one, this is the type of person you're going to be. There's an honesty about your words, sincerity. It's from the heart. You're not plastic. You're not a liar. It's real. It's in your heart. Number two, there's a maturity about your words. It's not a gossip. You don't slander. You don't backbite people. You don't speak negative about others. You know what happens when you start gossiping and you start talking smack about somebody? I'll tell you what. This is what happens. God says, okay, I'll see you later. You know, we used to be tight. 
We used to be right, man. And we were so hooked up. And it's so cool what God was doing. And then you start talking about my kids. I love them. I know they're messed up. And you know they're messed up. Tell you what, instead of you talking about them, go talk to them or pray for them. You know, we have to have a certain honesty about our words, a certain maturity about our words. And then there's actually a certainty about our words. You know, he talks about the heart right there. Again, notice it says that these are people who walk uprightly, they work righteousness, and they speak the truth in their heart. And that just talks about how our heart is right. Of course, we know that all our words come from our heart. In Luke 6.45, there's an overflow, right? Out of the good treasure of our heart, we bring forth good words. Out of the bad, we bring forth bad. So we have to make sure our heart is right. Proverbs 23, 6 and 7, it says, Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. For as he, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you. But his heart, his heart is not with you. That, that should never, ever be us. Not if you want the power of God. Not if you want the perpetual presence of God. Not if you want to be walking and filled and just on fire with the Holy Spirit. That when you're real in your heart, there's a, there's a, there's a certain genuineness and sincerity about you. That, that's the first thing. And then secondly, there's a maturity about your words. And he talks about uh, right here a lot about just, you know, backbiting people. And unfortunately... It says right here that this is the person who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach uh, against his friend. And one thing I've learned is that just as people in the world, you know, people in the world, they like the juicy, juicy, huh? You guys know how that is, right? They chismosos and it's crazy. Chismosos, is that how you say it? I don't know. (laughs) The gossip. You know, for whatever reason, why is it that people like that kind of stuff? I mean, it's crazy, right? But unfortunately, our, our flesh has an inclination to go that direction, right? And so when you become a Christian, James chapter 3 talks about the mature man, how he tames the tongue, how he doesn't do that anymore. You know, I, I mean, you've tamed the tongue, you've outgrown that inclination to backbite or speak evil of your neighbor or slur the saints, to insult them, to criticize them. You know, if you want the Lord to stay close to you, if you want to stay close to Him, then stop it. Stop it. Don't make the Lord leave the room. I mean, there's some truth to it that if you don't have anything good to say, then don't say anything at all. There is something about that that is powerful. You know, have you ever walked into the room and someone is talking about you? Have you guys ever done that? It's kind of cool. No, I'm just joking. You know, it's, it's just crazy though. You know, you're like, oh, and what does it do? It just breaks your heart. It's like, oh, man. And I feel like that's how the Lord feels every single time that we do that about someone in the church. Please, I beg of you, let's purify this church. If you have something, an issue with someone, go to them, talk to them. If you don't have the courage to do that, then pray. Let's pray for each other. Like I look around here and I'm thinking, Lord, there's a lot of people that are messed up, man. And I could say a lot of bad things, but you know what, Lord? 
I'm going to take it to you. And if necessary, I'll go to them. Let's make sure that we don't do this. Let's go, you know, and have this maturity uh, about our words. One prominent Bible teacher said that this is gossip. He said, I think more damage is being done to the church and its work by gossip, criticism, and slander than by any other single sin. So I say, don't do it. He said, bite your your tongue before you criticize. And then, you know, one guy, Adam Clark, he said this, and this is heavy. Listen to what he said. He said, he is a thief who would rob you of your good name. He is a coward that would speak of you in your absence when he dared not do so in your presence. And only an ill-conditioned dog would fly at you and bite you in the back when your face was turned. It's heavy stuff, huh? <laughs> oh, man, you know? And it's true, though. Let's not be a fool. Let's not be a coward. Let's not be a dog. Let's ask God to tame our tongue. You know, if we want, we can talk smack and gossip and backbite. But I just pray that we would remember that this psalm is laying down the principles for people who want God's presence and the favor of the Father. And so you guys know how, like, if I want to be right with God, I have to have the walk that's right. I have to have the talk that's right as well, right? Not just um, talky-talkies, not just walky-walkies. There's something about that sounds like Star Wars. We have to be walky-talkies, both, right? You know, there's a certain certainty about our words. Again, look at verse 4. It says, He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And what that means is your yes is yes and your no is no. It's uh, girded with truth. You're a woman. You're a man of truth. If you say you're going to be somewhere at a certain time, then you're there. If you say you'll arrive at 5 a.m., you're the kind that will be there probably 5 till 5, even if it hurts to get out of bed, which it does sometimes. But your word, your word is valued. Just like the Bible talks about how God exalts his word above his name in Psalm 138. Such a huge truth about his word. You know, and we can go in many directions with this, but we're running out of time. But I will say this, for example, it's like, you know, when you make a vow, you make a vow to God. When you got married, for example, that's a good vow. You know, and far more important than being on time is being true. And so you make a vow to God and and you say, for better, for worse, sickness and health, you know, uh, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And and your word, it means something. Now, I know there are some exceptions. Don't get me wrong. The Bible is very clear in 1 Corinthians 7, Matthew 19, about sometimes God knows there are certain relationships or marriages that they're, they're the one spouse, he won't repent. So God knows about those things. But I'm talking about, for example, I remember one time someone asked a prominent leader. Uh, they said, you know, my wife has Alzheimer's. She doesn't even know who I am. Dementia, she doesn't know who I am. And so this prominent leader said, you know what, you can leave her. Now, now that's not what we're talking about here, you know. We're talking about you made a vow, you swore to your own hurt, even if it costs you. I saw Karen take care of Bob for the last two years. That's what I'm talking about. You know, when we want God to stay close, we got to watch our walk and our, and our work and our words. And then the last thing mentioned here is our wealth. He mentions our wealth because a lot of times this will get in the way, huh? 
Notice what he says in verse 5. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. And of course, you know that the way that it was back then, as God said, if the poor are in a financial bind, rather than them going into slavery, you loan them some money, but don't charge them any interest. But what ends up happening a lot of times in our life and that businessman wanting to make money doesn't worry who he hurts. So many people have distanced themselves from God because of money. Right? I mean, I tell you what, you know, we should have the heart. I'd rather be poor. I'd rather live in a tent. And have God close to me than you know, some mansion and all the stuff the world has to offer. You know, I mean, if you have a price, the enemy will pay it. How many people have moved on account of money? You know, later on he says, if you do these things, if you take care of your walk and your work and your words and your wealth, and you give it to God, then you will never be moved. And that's where we want to be, huh? That's the promise we read there in verse 5. He says, and those who do these things, he who does these things shall never be moved. Oh, come on, Manny. You know, I'm sure like, you know, he'll take a day off or... It'll be hours, you know, when you're, you know, disconnected from God. And, you know, I don't know. And I know we live in a fallen world and everything. But I don't know. There is this something about just wanting to give God every day of my life, every moment of my day. I don't want to be disconnected. I want to be in that perpetual presence of God. I want you know, to stay in fellowship with him. And, and even in looking at this right here, it's interesting, you know, the, the mountain, man, how we never move from this mountain. If we walk and if our words and work and wealth is all set in place where God wants it to be, then we will enjoy his presence. I remember there was one time in the Old Testament when God said, you guys messed up too bad, so I'm not going to go with you. And my, you know, I'll give, I'll give you one of the angels or something, right? And then I remember Moses, he said in Exodus thirty-three, fifteen, Lord, I don't want to go anywhere. We don't want to go anywhere. We don't want to go anywhere without your special presence. And so the Lord saw that, how there was a change of heart and then he said, okay, if that's what you really want, then I'll tell you what, I'm going to honor that and I will give that to you. It's interesting. The new covenant, it gives us the ground for blessing and relationship with God. And we know it's all based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Under the new covenant, faith is the basis for the presence of God. And so I'm not telling you to jump through hoops. We're not telling you to do a thousand push-ups. At the end of the day, even though we're looking at all these things, we come back to the teaching that all you have to do is believe. And as you believe, then God begins to work and all these things begin to line up. 